unfortunately, what's happened in the last year with the war, people are understanding that when we have bad energy policy, people die as a direct result of that. And that changes people's minds. I think high energy prices change people's minds. And if nothing else, allows them to be curious and ask questions. Welcome to the Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. Today's sponsor is a company called Relay Human Cloud, which provides staff hosting and services that simplify the process of adding remote overseas workers while removing potential risks. At Fort Capital, we've relied on Relay Human Cloud to help us scale our business. And if you stick around to the end of this episode, you'll learn about an exclusive discount offer specifically for fans of the Fort Podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. At their core, Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate investment firm, but beyond that, they are committed to technology and a world-class culture, which leads to a very forward-thinking mentality. Do you want to stay in the know on all things Fort Capital? Be sure to follow Fort Capital on LinkedIn and sign up for the quarterly newsletter on www.fortcapitallp.com. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. Colin, welcome to the show. I'm really excited about today. We're going to have some fun. Yeah, I feel like uh, this has been a long time coming. Uh, We've been friends for I don't know how many years on Twitter, and uh, I'm excited about it. Dude, I I love, I think you're you're one of the good guys, man. Let's just... (laughs) We've had a lot of fun the last couple of years on Twitter and and all the, the worlds are starting to collide where a lot of my really good buddies are folks that I've been online with for years. And, and here's one of them right here. Yeah, I mean, you look at the evolution of the Internet and it's funny because, you know, when we were kids, we were told not to take uh, not to talk to strangers <laughs> and don't talk to people on the Internet. And here we are, like most of my friends come from the Internet. And so it's pretty funny to look at how the world evolves. And I think that uh, it's extremely powerful. You are at the intersection of building a huge digital uh, business. Let's just start there. Uh, you were in the oil field. I think it would be important to kind of share like what that experience was like and then how you took that from working in the the oil field to building digital wildcatters. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in West Texas in a place called Midland, Texas. So people know Midland, Texas for one of two things. One, they've seen the movie Friday Night Lights and they know Midland Lee, which is the school that I went to, or they know it as uh, being the capital of the Permian Basin, which is the largest oil and gas play in the United States. And so graduated high school and I've always been an entrepreneur, so I didn't want to go to college. Um, And I looked around and I just saw a bunch of rich people around me in my town uh, that had started oil and gas companies. I was like, okay, maybe (laughs) I should go learn the oil and gas business. And so I uh, started roughnecking on drilling rigs and, you know, roughnecking is probably one of the most uh, blue collar, uh, dangerous jobs in the United States. Um, You know, there's been a few videos that have gone viral on Twitter and TikTok lately, uh, roughnecks throwing chain on drilling rigs. And so 
um, got to do that and learned how to drill oil wells. And so this was pre-American shale. So we're still drilling uh, vertical wells, these like little 11,000 foot wells. And right at that time is when shale started taking off. So I got to see the advancements of drilling oil and gas wells uh, firsthand where we went from drilling these 10,000, 11,000 foot vertical wells to all of a sudden drilling 20,000 foot horizontal wells. And so um, did that for a couple of years, learned how to drill wells. Then I wanted to learn how to complete wells. So I went and started running uh, wireline, which is a process in fracking and worked a hundred hours a week, just fracking oil and gas wells. And that was my, my life for the better part of a few years. And then 2014 came around and I got offered a job as a project manager for a company here in Houston. And it was an amazing opportunity. I got to manage millions of uh, dollars of drilling and completions operations in the Western hemisphere. So I got to work on deep water drill ships in the Gulf of Mexico, which I think are some of the most technologically advanced operations in the world. I got to spend time on the North Slope of Alaska. I worked on oil wells in the middle of Los Angeles Hell and yeah. golf courses, which a lot of people don't know that Los Angeles has a ton of <laughs> oil and gas. And so I got a ton of experience just getting to uh, uh, see how operations ran in different oil and gas basins. And uh, in 2018, um, decided that it was my time to quit and go start a business. I really um, I had a few ideas that I wanted to pursue. One, I bought some oil wells up in Oklahoma. And then I discovered very quickly that my skill set didn't really add a ton of value to operating <laughs> oil and gas wells. And so it wasn't really the model that I wanted to pursue. And simultaneously, a few interesting things were happening in that time period. One, you had the great crew change in oil and gas where you had the boomer generation. And then with the bust in the 80s, Gen X just did not get into the oil and gas industry. And then millennials came up uh, behind them with shale. And so there is this huge gap between boomers and millennials and so millennials wanted a new way to consume content. They wanted a new way to build community. And they honestly wanted the industry to look cooler, like Silicon Valley and tech. And what happened was you had a lot of these millennial engineers that were finding problems in their companies and you know making $100 million decisions based off Excel spreadsheets and said, hey, I can build a SaaS-based solution to solve this problem, not just for our company, but for other companies. So you started having these tech startups uh, popping up. And at the time, there was a lack of early stage capital for these tech startups. So I tried talking to VCs on the coast and trying to bring money into the space. And these VCs would always ask, where can we go to learn about oil and gas and these startups? And there wasn't a place on the internet to send them to. So we started a podcast in 2018 called the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. You know, not very imaginative in the name, but it got the point across of what the show was about. <laughs> and we built this platform where for the first time ever, these uh, oil and gas tech founders had a way to come tell their story and talk about the technological solutions that they were building. And then on the flip side, you had the end users listening to the show. So engineers would listen to the show and all of a sudden give a million dollar pilot to this startup. And so we really became known for uh, building community in this ecosystem around oil and gas tech. And so we did that uh, just kind of as a hobby for the better part of two years. And then um, in 2020, a month before COVID, of course, we decided to go full time uh, on digital wildcatters. <laughs> and, um, you know, you fast forward to today and our mission is to change the way the world thinks about energy. And so we are pro energy. We love oil and gas, but we also understand that the world's becoming more dynamic and uh, needs a more diverse and secure 
uh, energy mix. And so renewables play a big part in that, um, geothermal, hydro, um, carbon capture, and seeing it as our obligation to be a bridge between uh, traditional energy and new energy because you know, Chris, you're on Twitter, you're aware of this, you know, the, the, um, understanding of energy among general population is abysmal. And what that does is it leads to, uh, bad narratives, bad energy policy and bad energy policy has huge ramifications. And we have seen that over the past year with, uh, the Russian Ukraine war with energy shortages in Europe, which leads to, uh, you know, fertilizer shortages and a food crisis. And so it's really important that we have pragmatic discussions about energy and get this right. And so that's what we really focus on doing at Digital Wildcatters is uh, educating society and raising energy IQ, and then also building the community and platform for energy professionals to go solve the world's energy crisis. So started with the podcast. Now we've got this vision of really uh, changing the way that the world thinks about energy. Dude, I freaking love it. And you've paid your dues. Uh when you say a hundred hours a week in the field, give like a one minute description of what it's like to work uh, when you're roughnecking for a hundred hours. I don't think people fully understand. Yeah. So when I was roughnecking on drilling rigs, we'd work 12 hour towers. And so you would have two towers, you had a day shift and a night shift and day shift starts at 530 AM. It's usually an hour to an hour and a half drive. So you got to wake up at four o'clock every morning and get ready, go to work. And so, you know, when you get to a rig, it's very, like I said, it's very blue collar, very manual labor, especially back in that day, because um, we had older drilling technology. And so you're doing things like uh, tripping pipe where you're just constantly pulling pipe out of the ground and you got these big uh, tools that are called tongs and they're like big pipe wrenches, except it takes a full grown man to swing them onto the pipe and latch them up. And then <laughs> you're pulling your slips out of the ground. So it's a ton of heavy lifting. Like if you ever meet a roughneck, uh, you'll see like, you know, I was 23 years old and I already had old man strength just from uh, tossing around <laughs> steel on a, on a drilling rig. So um, it's an extremely dangerous job. You know, my first two months in, I saw my coworker get a couple of his fingers uh, ripped off oh. and uh, it's pretty gruesome. You know, I went and picked up his glove and his fingers are still on his glove, ripped out his tendons oh. and it looked like string cheese hanging out of his glove. And <laughs> it's kind of gruesome. Like you put his fingers in the bed of the truck, send him to the hospital and then we got back to drilling the well. Um, and so uh, very rough environment, rough people that were in the, that environment back in that day. So, um, you know, I started roughnecking when I was 19, 20 years old and, uh, I grew up pretty, pretty quick. I'll, uh, I'll say that much. Dude, I love it. I have so much respect for you and anybody that does that stuff. Um, I don't think people fully have an understanding of what it takes to get oil out of the ground. Thanks, man. And I appreciate that. And you know, what's funny is when I worked in the field, I'd hear people say that from corporate offices all the time, like, oh, we really respect the guys out in the field. And at the time to me, I always thought that was really corny. But now that I'm removed out of the field, I have so much respect and appreciation for people that are out there, especially with the narratives that are out in the world today um, that essentially demonize and bastardize uh, oil and gas workers when these people are working. It doesn't matter. You know, I've been in, you know, North Slope. I was working in negative 60 degrees Fahrenheit uh, blizzards. You go out to West Texas, you're working in 115 degree heat and there's no way to escape the elements. You know, you're out there working in these things and 
you're working on Christmas. You know, I can't, I've missed my kids' birthdays. I've missed Christmases with my family. And that's what it takes to power the world and make things go around. And I don't think a lot of people have an appreciation for that. And to be fair, you know, they don't have any exposure to those things. They don't know that that's what it takes. You know, if you're a kid up in, you know, New York state, how would you have any possible way of knowing what it takes to power the world and where your electricity comes from? And so I think that's, what's been really special about, uh, social media, uh, particularly TikTok, because, um, people have been able to show through video, uh, what it's like. And I think that that kind of helps build up, um, an appreciation for the people that work out in the field. Why do you think that the industry, the oil and gas industry before you came around and folks like you did such a bad job of kind of telling their story about why they're important? Like, how did the narrative get so bad? And and when I think of these companies that have billions of dollars, it's like, go throw some marketing dollars at this and let's change the narrative. How did it get to yeah. where it is? Like, do you have any history of like why we got to this place where everybody hates oil and gas? Yeah, I'll give my take on it. Um, if it's accurate, I'm not sure, but this is my take is that um, the oil and gas industry never had to market because you're producing a commodity. The market's going to buy your product mm. regardless. So storytelling was never at top of mind. And it's actually really interesting because if you look at the evolution of storytelling um, in oil and gas, I feel like the industry actually used to be good at it. I don't know if you've ever saw the show Cosmos, um, um, but a lot of physicists today were inspired by the show Cosmos. And Cosmos was actually funded by Arco, an oil and gas company. And the whole thing is about uh, the universe and the stars and physics and black holes and things of this nature. And I think oil and gas used to do a ton of good things uh, like that in content creation and telling their story. And um, at some point it just turned and, you know, I think um, over, let's call it the, the 80s or let's go from 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, they just got complacent and got to a point where it's like, why do we have to tell our story? People are going to buy our product. Um, there are no other energy sources. And then all of a sudden you get hit with a brick wall, which is, or like a freight train, which is ESG. And all of a sudden storytelling and controlling the narrative is extremely important. And you're playing behind the eight ball and you have a huge wave of momentum that's moving against you. And so I think that that's the reason why. And I think a lot of people in the oil and gas industry are, um, you know, pretty fed up with the lack of storytelling as a whole and obviously fed up with um, the narrative against them. And I think, you know, Elon Musk was on Joe Rogan's podcast last year and actually had a really good comment. Elon said, we shouldn't demonize people in the oil and gas industry. He's like, they've done all this great work to power the world. And it's like, true noble work that they're doing. And then all of a sudden overnight, people are attacking them. He's like, that's, that's not right. And so I think that, um, you know, just what's happened since 2020, the last two years have been weird. I mean, the last two years have been weird for the world as a whole, but oil and gas and energy, uh, specifically because you went from oil and gas being demonized, oil and gas, you know, oil prices going to negative $37, everyone, online's like oil's dead um, <laughs> and you know claiming that that this is the death knell for oil and then all of a sudden we have uh ramifications where 
people are dying around the world um, due to bad energy policy. And Russia has this massive amount of leverage. And all of a sudden, it's a wake up call to a lot of my friends who are even kind of anti oil and gas saying, oh, wow, yeah, we need to frack and we need to produce more oil and gas. And it's not an either or when it comes to energy production, it's an all of the above. We need to have the most diverse and secure energy mix that we can have. And so I think that the opportunity for oil and gas right now to actually tell their story and, um, you know, you made a comment about like oil and gas companies throwing a ton of marketing dollars, you know, companies like Exxon and BP and Chevron do this. And I don't think it works out well for them because they'll tell a story on, on Twitter. And if you go on the Twitter comments, I mean, it's just, it's brutal. What Exxon should do is pay me to get in the comments and, uh, and troll these people (laughs) and, uh, and, and talk to them. But, um, you know, I think that the industry needs, uh, more companies like digital wildcatters, more people like myself, more people like the, the creators on TikTok who are showing their everyday lives in, um, in the field. That's who people connect to is like real personalities, not just companies. For sure. Yeah. You said ESG and like, I just think it's important. I was, I was reading something the other day and it frames it really nicely, but it's, you know, you take like a BlackRock that's pushing this ESG narrative and they're making companies like Exxon and Chevron, you know, basically I'm not saying, um, they're basically trying to shut them down while at the same time, BlackRock is the largest, is one of the largest shareholders of PetroChina. And so the Western world has to obey, but the same kind of ruler of ESG lets the Eastern world kind of run. China is going to not participate in ESG at all. And that one of their biggest backers is BlackRock. And so as we think about this narrative, and I hope you um, in your company continue to beat this drum of like, what is really going on with ESG? Because it's not, it seems to me to be a house of cards. It's like a facade. Yeah, I think that ESG is a massive grift. And let me clarify on that a bit because um, I do believe that we need to think about things in a sustainable manner, both for the planet and for society. So I don't necessarily disagree with what ESG is trying to achieve, but there are a lot of people that are behind ESG that are in it to make money. And, you know, Larry Fink and BlackRock um, have been some of the main. motivators and pushing ESG and demonizing oil and gas and pushing this divestment out of American oil and gas while simultaneously behind the scenes still have a ton of interest in oil and gas. And so I think narratives like that are extremely uh, dangerous and damaging to society. And you kind of alluded to this whole idea of outsourcing our emissions to other countries like China, who doesn't care about ESG And this is something that um, I think about constantly because you look at Massachusetts. Let's talk about some bad energy policy here in the United States real quick. Let's let's get on this topic. Let's do it. Let's look at Massachusetts. Massachusetts and the New England area in general loves natural gas. Uh, A lot of their electricity is generated from uh, natural gas and peaker plants. The problem is, is that they don't have any natural gas supply, so they have to import uh, LNG, which stands for liquefied natural gas, from uh, other parts of the world, um, South America, Africa, and even at times Russia. And so you're one, these countries 
do not give a damn about environmental standards. So dirty operations, they don't care about the environment, they're emitting uh, CO2 and methane in that process. Then you're putting LNG on these massive ships and sending it over to Massachusetts and New England area. Why this is so ironic is because New England is 200 miles away from the most prolific natural gas play in the world, which is the Marcellus <laughs> Utica. And you have huge natural gas producers like EQT who produce um, a just an ungodly amount. I think EQT does like uh, five uh, billion cubic feet a day. Um, and they don't allow them to build a pipeline to serve the people right in their backyard. So instead of building a pipeline, which pipelines are incredibly safe ways of transporting hydrocarbons, they would rather import natural gas LNG from <laughs> countries that are much dirtier. You look at California, you know, California has a proposal to ban all oil and gas operations. And we're not just talking about new drills, we're talking about current producing wells. And California is an extremely resource rich state, um, has a very storied, um, you know, oil and gas history. You can look at, there's old pictures of Huntington Beach where there's just wood derricks yeah. lining, lining the beach. You go to certain parts, like, you know, I worked in Brea, which is a suburb of, Los Angeles. Brea literally stands for tar. Uh, that's what it means in <laughs> Spanish. It's an oil town. And um, so they have great oil and gas assets, but they hate oil and gas and they will not produce oil and gas and they make the permitting process ne uh, next to impossible. But you go, you know, one of my, one of my favorite guys on Twitter, great friend of mine, Mike Umbro, he'll get out on his kayak and he'll go out in the water off the coast of California and show all these tanker ships that are just sitting there and just emitting. I mean, their emissions off of tanker uh, ships are, are terrible. And they're sitting there uh, holding crude, uh, waiting to import this crude. And those come from places like uh, you know South America and uh, different countries like that. So California would rather export uh, or outsource their emissions to third world countries and have this facade that they're uh, clean instead of just having good environmental standards and producing resources in their own state, in their own backyard. So this is, uh, and what that leads to is extremely high energy prices in the state of California. So you see Governor Newsom keeps coming out and attacking oil and gas refiners and companies for high gasoline prices. And it's like, you have all these regulations, we have to import everything, we have high taxes, what do you expect? And so that's the type of stuff that we need to get through people's heads that we, one, we need to get bad, rid of bad energy policy. We need to produce as much uh, domestic energy as we can. I think the whole idea of energy independence is a lie. I don't think that's ever possible, um, but we need to have as many diverse sources as, as we can and just think about it in a smart way. But the virtue signal is so good though. It tastes so good to just say, we don't like energy. The, the virtue signaling is at an all-time high. Um, it's it's at an all-time high. And you have people like Greta Thunberg that somehow, some way have built this massive platform. And the movement of climate has almost, uh, not almost, it is a cult. You know, you have people throwing tomato soup on paintings to stop oil and gas. Doesn't make any sense <laughs> why they're doing that. But that's how deeply they believe in this. And that's, that's fine. But, um, you know, there's, there's just a lot of 
odd things happening that aren't based in science or thought about from a scientific approach. And the thing about energy production is it's a game of physics. So everything will abide by the laws of physics <laughs> and virtue signaling is not going to produce energy. And so that's just the world that we're living in right now. And we have to be able to um, combat that narrative and actually have people think about things in a, in a smart and scientific way. So you're at the front of this. Is Are, are you seeing any positive signs that at least somebody's that may have thought differently is starting to change your mind. Like, is there any good sign that we're, you know, t changing the ship? And is that because people are dying all over the world because of lack of oil and gas that's changing it? Or is it because we're doing a good job of telling the story now? There's a hundred percent of change happening. And, um, I see this both on a one-on-one -on -one personal level in my conversations. And then I also see it on a more macro trend. So, um, you know, before the Russian Ukraine war, I gave this, I, I got asked to give this lunch and learn to this law firm. And some of the attorneys were over in the UK and I didn't know what I was going to talk about. I just kind of riffed in what I wanted to talk about that day was how natural gas is the actual, uh, quote unquote transition fuel of the future. And my whole, my whole little, uh, talk on that was, Hey, look, Natural gas is displacing coal. It emits 50% less emissions than coal. Um, it's very abundant, um, burns very cleanly. The one issue with uh, natural gas is rogue methane emissions, but those can be mitigated 100%. And so you can actually get to this point where we produce methane or we produce natural gas with uh, very little um, methane emissions. And so I'm sitting there talking and this attorney over in the UK stops me. He said, hey, Colin, he's like, I'm listening to you. He's like, I'm also fact checking you while you're talking. He's like, you know, over in the UK, we love to tout that we've driven down our CO2 emissions. He's like, but as I'm looking, he's like, all that is, is like we switched from using coal to switching natural gas. He's like, now we're in this energy crisis. And he's like, it's kind of becoming clear that switching from natural gas to only renewables isn't going to be as easy. It took me five minutes of just laying that out to change someone's mind and give them the facts and context that they needed to form their own opinion. And so I do this on a one-by-one -one basis. Like, you know, my wife will laugh. I'll be sitting next to someone on the plane and guess what? Four hours, we're talking about energy policy. And so um, so I've seen that uh, at a micro scale, but on a more macro scale, yeah, I think um, unfortunately what's happened in the last year with the uh, with the war, um, people are understanding that when we have bad energy policy, people die as a direct result of that, and that changes people's minds. Um, I think high energy prices change people's minds, and if nothing else, you know, just. Um, allows them to be curious and ask questions. You know, I had a YouTuber reach out. He sent me a message uh, just a couple of days ago. It's got millions of followers on YouTube. He's like, hey, Colin, I really appreciate your uh, TikTok videos that you've been making on energy. I'm learning a lot. Like, that's awesome. Like now this guy who's got millions of followers on YouTube he can go plant, start planting seeds. And, and he's starting to make content about investing in oil and gas. And so um, that's how it's done. And, you know, you don't turn the ship overnight and you have to do these things one by one by one. And I think that um, I think that it's working like I'm, you know, remember in 2020 trying to convince this investor up in New York to invest in us. He loved loved us personally, loved the idea. But he's like, oil and gas is dead. You know, I was having to convince him that 
oil and gas wasn't dead. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> even about our company in particular. It was about oil and gas on a micro level. Um, and now you fast forward and it's like, oh, this is awesome. You actually have like tailwinds and people are talking about energy. You turn on the TV, people are talking about energy. Politicians are talking about energy. Um, and so I think that it's uh, a very exciting time to be involved and work in the energy industry because it's at the top of mind for everyone. And it's a great opportunity to actually teach them. The more I've learned about you and what you're building and like where we are in the world right now, it's one of the most noble jobs you could possibly be doing right now is educating the world on not just oil and gas, but energy. I, I think I had Alex Epstein on not, you know, like a year ago. And he said this thing that I think about all the time. He's like, when the energy stops, the machines stop working. And when the machines stop working, you go back to like people in, you know, planting their own food and, and really going back to like the caveman era. Our whole world yeah. is run on these machines and those machines stop like they don't like you don't get this heads up and it takes a while. It's like they stop as soon as there's no oil to put in them um, or energy yeah, you, in general. You don't even have to go back to the caveman era. Let's just go back to the 1800s. Do you want to live life in the 1800s? Because my understanding is that it probably sucked compared <laughs> to our life today, right? So you don't even have to go back to the caveman era. And, you know, it's funny because... Uh, I was I was uh, actually telling someone on my uh, technical team this uh, that I got in this fight with this famous hacker on Twitter and he ended up blocking me and uh, <laughs> she asked me who the hacker's name was and I told her she's like oh my god Colin like yeah everyone knows him <laughs> but it was when the um, oh, the name is uh, slipping my mind right now but uh, the the pipeline in the southeast got hacked uh, last year and was down for I think a week and they ended up. I mean, this is like the artery for the Southeast to get fuel and they ended up paying the ransom. And this hacker made this tweet about, oh, it's cool to, this isn't verbatim, but it's along the lines. He's like, oh, it's cool to see that when an oil and gas company gets hacked, the ransom gets paid. But when a hospital gets hacked, no one, you know, no one's rushing to pay the ransom. I said, you understand that energy is upstream of literally everything in our in our life. Those hospitals cannot operate without energy. Yeah. And so, yeah, like I think Atlanta was like within 24 hours of running out of gasoline, like being dry because of that hat. What is the, the chaos and the second, third order effects that you have from not having energy? You know, we've seen, I've been in some, you know, I was here during Hurricane Harvey in Houston and saw what happened the second that you don't have electricity and fuel. And it's a disaster zone. I mean, it is going through Har Hurricane Harvey was apocalyptic. And, you know, fortunately, the people like Houston has some of the best people in the world and everyone banded together and helped each other out. But yeah, you run out of you run out of gasoline and fuel and electricity. I mean, society doesn't make it much past 24 hours without completely crumbling. And I think COVID lockdowns showed us what happens when the world just kind of like comes to a, a, a halt. Now think about, hey, there's no electricity or power at all. Now the world really comes to a halt and that's scary to think about. It's super scary to think about. If you're like me, you like to wake up and get your daily dose of reading. For me, a lot of that has to do with commercial real estate because of the industry that we're in at Fort Capital. And the news is important, but if you're a busy real estate professional like me, you don't have time to skim through the dozens of dry and ad-filled media outlets each day. 
That's why I read CRE Daily, a free email newsletter that cuts through the clutter and delivers concise, witty commentary on the latest trends and transactions in commercial real estate. I discovered CRE Daily a few months ago, and it's an email I actually look forward to getting each morning. If you're a real estate professional, you owe it to yourself to try it out and stay on top of what's happening in the industry in only five minutes. To give their free daily newsletter a try, visit CREdaily.com. That's CREdaily.com. Okay, let's kind of pivot a little bit. What are some, uh, you cover a lot, like what are some of the energy sources that you're excited about or that you're seeing uh, besides just oil yeah. and gas, which is the the OG? Let's touch on oil and gas real quick because there's a lot of transformation happening in oil and gas. And I actually think that some of the most sustainable uh, technology efforts over the next decade or so are happening in the oil and gas industry. Just like I was talking about mitigating and driving down methane emissions, there's a heavy push on that and focus on that, which makes sense. Cause like if you're a natural gas company, you don't want your product <laughs> leaking into the atmosphere. You're literally losing your product. So it's not even always just about uh, climate or the environment. It's like these companies are incentivized to keep their, their product in the pipeline. So um, I think that's super interesting. Um, you know, it, us being here in Texas, Chris, um, like we have a front row seat to what the future of energy looks like because we are an energy powerhouse. And so, you know, if you ever go spend time out in my hometown of Midland and out in West Texas, like it wasn't just drilling rigs and pump jacks out there. I mean, you have tons of uh, wind farms and solar arrays and the amount of wind energy that Texas has, we're the leading state for wind energy. And I wouldn't be surprised if we're the leading state for solar too um, soon. So, I think um, one thing that I'm really interested in when it comes to that is bi-directional uh, meters at houses. And so Tesla, California is actually doing something good. And I'll go on the record saying this, but PG&E, who's utility provider in California, has a partnership with Tesla. And Tesla, you know, they have their uh, their wall batteries. And so if you have the Tesla wall battery, at your house, you can enroll in this program. And essentially what happens is uh, PG&E will uh, send you a notification at you know at noon, call it 12 o'clock and say, hey, we're anticipating having peak demand at 6 p.m. We're gonna go ahead and charge your batteries. And then at 6 p.m., we're gonna draw power from those batteries, send it out into the grid and we're gonna pay you for it. I think that's awesome. Oh, and yeah. I think I think that's the future and being able to have distributed energy assets and the ability to uh, draw power from those assets and incentivize the people who own those assets, um, you know, pay them for that power. And so that's starting to come to Texas. Um, there's a lot of red tape and barriers to actually making that work at scale. But I get super interested in the idea of solar and batteries at the house. Um, if you really want to nerd out, like I love, you know, slapping a couple of Bitcoin miners on that as well. And so you have this whole microgrid at your house, and then you have the ability to charge up your batteries and sell power into the grid, um, when it's needed most. And so that really helps, uh, with, uh, being able to have flex loads and match, um, supply and demand. And so I think that's the big thing with renewables is, you know, everyone knows renewables are intermittent. And so supply doesn't always match up with demand. And I think that uh, I actually believe that a lot of the grid issues that we're dealing with in Texas, these blackouts and brownouts are a result of us scaling up our wind 
power generation too quickly um, and divesting from backup power generation, which is typically coal and natural gas. And so for renewables to be commercially viable, you need either backup power generation, you need battery storage, which we're starting to build battery storage, but it's going to take a long time to get to the scale that we need to. And it's going to continue to get more expensive because of all the metals that are needed and um, and then software and applications and virtual power plants that can allow us to have bi-directional flow of energy. That's what's uh, that's what's super interesting to me and gets me excited. You know, I I personally like electric vehicles. I think that EVs can be a better product than internal combustion engines. I think it's awesome that you know I could go buy an F one fifty Lightning and I can charge up my battery and. We have a freeze and the grid goes out and I can draw power from my my vehicle. Um, I think that's really cool. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think electric vehicles, uh, at least in the next 20 years, maybe ever, can have 100% uh, market share. Also, renewables definitely cannot have 100% market share. They never will. Uh, we're picking all the low-hanging fruit right now. And so that goes back to this whole thing of, hey, it's pro-energy and it's not either or, it's all of the above. And I don't know why things are always so binary um, for people to where they think that uh, it's either EVs or ICE vehicles. Um, I think that you can have both. And honestly, you can have hybrids, which people just seem to kind of forget about. I think hybrids are a great solution. And so those are the things that I'm interested in. Geothermal is also very interesting to me. Um, geothermal has been around for decades. It's always been this promise of infinite energy. Um, what's cool about geothermal now is that you have people from oil and gas going over to geothermal and uh, people in oil and gas are really good at drilling wells. And so we're kind of, you know, not to like see their own horn, but like we're kind of coming in here and, <laughs> and, and showing how it's done. And so there's, um, you know, that question's hard to answer of like, you know, what I'm most excited about or what interests me because all of it interests me. Um, you know, I think Bitcoin mining plays a huge part in energy infrastructure. So there's Why? a million, um, <laughs> <laughs> what? Chris, I, Chris, well, just, Chris just said, why? <laughs> why? I was not expecting you to say that. So Bitcoin mining is energy intensive. And I think that's like one of the main critiques about it, but what also makes it really special. And I first started seeing this problem like in 2017, you know, Texas in particular had a ton of flared gas. And what flared gas means is that you're producing oil and you don't have pipeline connections to get that gas to market, or it's not economic to build a pipeline to get that gas to market. So you get a flaring permit and you literally just burn this gas into the atmosphere and combust it. And why that becomes an issue, one, for uh, climate and sustainability efforts, like burning gas into the atmosphere isn't the best. And then two, just an economic perspective, you drill this $10 million oil and gas well, it'd be great if you could recover value from that asset. And so we first started looking at putting out Bitcoin miners out on these um, stranded gas assets. You put out a nat gas generator, you run the natural gas through the generator, generate electricity, power your Bitcoin miners, and now all of a sudden you can take that waste of gas and turn it into real economic value um, by mining Bitcoin. And so started seeing that happen. Now what's cool is that it can actually enable um, renewable assets to be built out. So 
here's the you know dirty little secret is that a lot of renewable assets don't make sense without government subsidies from an economic perspective and so you actually have a ton of stranded renewable assets you know a wind turbine farm that has no transmission lines and connectivity that doesn't make a lot of sense if you look at it on paper it's like why would you ever build this uh you know 100 million dollar asset if you don't have a way to get it to market and the reason is because the subsidies uh make it economic but now you can look at all right can we build out this wind turbine farm and put bitcoin miners on there to uh leverage our excess energy when our supply doesn't meet demand and actually recover value from that asset and so it actually enables more renewables to be built out because you have this demand that's flex that you can allocate your energy towards and actually uh make money on it you know, what's really cool is there's some nonprofits that are working over in Nigeria right now that um, these these villages don't have access to electricity. You know, this is a big topic in raising energy IQ is that there are billions of people that live in energy poverty. They don't have electricity. They cook their food with animal dung in their houses. You know, it's hard. I've never been over there. So it's even hard for me to imagine what life is actually like over there and you go build this uh hydro facility and it provides electricity to the uh to the village the problem is is that there's excess energy and so say that it cost i don't know hundred thousand dollars to build this uh the this this hydro facility and it produces you know 10 kilowatts of energy but the village only needs one the village still has to pay for that excess energy. And so this nonprofit's actually going in there and setting up Bitcoin miners to take that excess energy. And it brings down the electricity costs for everyone in the village because now there's a power taker um, that's willing to pay for that electricity and take that burden off of the villagers. And so I think the impact that Bitcoin mining can have on communities throughout the world um, is extremely um, high. And you see this in Texas too, Chris, you know, just outside of Fort Worth, there's these massive mining facilities. They're as long as like two football fields and like three stories high and they run on the grid. They have power purchase agreements with ERCOT. They'll purchase power from ERCOT at wholesale prices. And then when there's peak demand, like a freeze, for example, ERCOT goes to the miner, says, hey, we need you to shut off and the miners will shut off. And then that power can be diverted to other parts of the state. And so it allows for this uh, flex in load balancing. I think it's extremely cool. Um, and I think that um, it's going to play a, a massive part in energy company strategy moving forward. You already see companies like Conoco, EOG. Um, these companies are already, they have partnerships where they're mining Bitcoin on some of their, um, uh, flared gas assets. Is that like a, it's going to happen in perpetuity or do we, once we mine all the Bitcoin, we have to figure something else out to mine, or is this something that could last for another hundred years or are we going to be done with this thing in 10 years once all the Bitcoins mined? Yeah. I mean, the, uh, last Bitcoin won't be mined for like, I don't know, 150 years or okay. something like that. Right. So we'll cross that bridge <laughs> okay. when we get there. Fair That's enough. someone else's problem. That's not our problem. Um, but also um, there'll be transaction fees on on the network as well. So um, that, that'll be needed. You'll still need some compute for that. But it's not just Bitcoin mining. I mean, um, you put computer servers out there too. One thing a lot of people don't know is that big tech is actually a huge... Um, driver for renewable assets. So companies like Google and Microsoft have come out with these uh, initiatives where they want their servers to be powered by 100% renewables. 
And so you can actually co-locate your servers with these uh, renewable assets. And so that's a that's another thing. Like it doesn't have to be Bitcoin miners. It can just be computers and servers in general. Interesting. Super cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I know I have friends, you know, that are third generation oil families and they have started new companies and they're Bitcoin miners first. And they just happen to operate oil and gas assets to uh, power their Bitcoin mining operations. So um, it's pretty cool to see that evolution. I love it. I want to kind of finish on a topic that is selfish, um, but you've learned a lot about building community. Let's just kind of spend some time there. Like when you think about building a community and in, in the way that you're doing it, what is like what are the things that that you're doing to actually build this community? Like what matters and what doesn't? What have you learned over the last couple of years and how to do this? And then I want to talk about events. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was gonna say. I think you've done a good job building community. I think Moses uh, has done a really good job building community. I love seeing what you guys are both doing um, in commercial real estate. I think community is the future. Um, you know, let's let's talk about this thesis real quick, and then I'll I'll answer your question more directly. But if you look at the evolution of the internet, uh, Web one was very static forums and message boards. Web two was horizontal social media platforms. So actually, the first company that coined the term Web2 was LinkedIn in their Series B deck in 2004. And at that time, you had MySpace, you had LinkedIn, you had YouTube, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all these horizontal social media platforms uh, grow. And when I say a horizontal platform, I mean, they don't serve any particular niche or community. They were really good at connecting everyone around the world for the first time and then allowing people to be creators. Now, as we move into the next evolution of the internet, I believe that you're going to have these vertically integrated communities that have both digital components and in real life components. And so when it comes to building community, one, um, you've probably seen some of my takes like on Twitter, like I'm pretty like anti remote work because I think culture and community is like such a, such a big thing. Um, this is based off of, you know, million years of human evolution where we like being face to face with people. We need our tribe. We need our community. And we, I mean, it's a necessity for us to have that connection uh, to live and to be a society. And so what I've seen with digital wildcatters, I think one of the things that we have done best is build community. Um, and that's what sets us apart from many other media companies is that we have such a strong community and that sometimes it looks like a cult, which we can, you know, I think there's a fine line between cult and community. <laughs> but um, the one thing that I've seen is, that I think is extremely important to building community is always providing more value than what you extract. And having that mindset, I think a lot of people are too transactional and short-sighted and always look for what's in it for them. You know, I told you about how we started our podcast. We did that for free for years and we had no way of monetizing. Like we just wanted to provide so much value um, to the ecosystem and that's how we ended up building community. And so that's actually one of our, our first core value at Digital Wildcatters is community over everything. And um, it's really, that's our guiding force on what we do as a company. Like, hey, if this isn't valuable to our community, we're not going to do it. And so um, I think events have played a massive part in that. You know, obviously we have this big content arm with our podcast network and social media, but 
our events is where we really um, are able to build community. And our thesis around those events are that you have these collisions happen. If you get a bunch of smart, forward-thinking people together in the room, and those collisions are the catalyst for ideas and collaboration and opportunity, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've had dinner with someone, and three years later, something came from that came from that dinner mm-hmm. or an event. And um, you know, I, I know you and I have talked about events, uh, yeah. and, and and I want to I want to hear about what you think about community because you know when I look at it, what you're doing isn't too much different than what we do at Digital Wildcatters, right? Um, you have your business model and commercial real estate, but you have this con- like you have this content arm, which I think every company should be think about a, themselves as a media company. Like you should be creating content, and then okay, you have this. Then what can we do to build community and bring in events and things of that nature? So that's how I think about community, though. Is like you just have to provide value to people and find people that are passionate about a niche, a topic. So for you, commercial real estate, for me, it's energy and oil and gas. How many, you have newsletter, you have events, you have podcasts. What other pillars can you add or what do you plan on adding to keep building out this community? That's an exciting question for me because um, we saw early on that once you build community and a network, you can build products to serve that community and that network. And funny enough, I got this idea from Barstool Sports. And so Barstool Sports at the end of 2019 got acquired by Penn National Gaming for half a billion dollars. I'm like, why would a casino want to acquire Barstool Sports? And so I go pull apart their entire investor relations deck and it made so much sense. Penn National had a gambling app that they wanted to take to market, but FanDuel and DraftKings owned the fantasy sports market. So Penn National acquires Barcel Sports. All of a sudden, boom, you have this powerhouse community with characters that are creating content and just massive distribution. Now Barcel Sports, I mean, they make a ton of gambling content that is based around that app. And so that's when the lights went off. It's like, oh, we've made this community and this network through our content and our events. Now we can actually build tech products to serve uh, that community. So our idea um, that we came up with through talking to, and here's the best thing about having communities, they'll tell you what they want built. So you don't have to guess, like you can build in these feedback loops. And we built a platform called Collide, which is a knowledge, knowledge sharing platform for energy professionals. And so it's much like Stack Overflow was for software developers, where you had a place to go ask uh, technical questions about your code and get answers in real time from your peers. Built the same thing for uh, the energy industry. So now when uh, two engineers are talking about artificial lift pumps in an oil well, very technical information. Boom. We index that. Now the next time a 23 year old kid comes out of petroleum engineering school and has a question on artificial lift, they can query that information and find it. And if they can't find the information, they can ask their senior peers and get answers in real time. And then you build a recruiting platform on top of that to unbundle LinkedIn and Indeed and be the uh, jobs and recruiting platform for the energy industry. And so I think that that's... um, I think that that's the future. And you see other like Morning Brew, for example, is getting into courses and tech products after they built a community and audience from media. And so I think that you're going to see this in all different types of verticals and interests and niches. And it's not just something that's uh, a specific thesis to us. I think that that's happening across the board. Dude, 
have you launched any of this stuff yet or is this in the making or yeah we launched uh so it's funny if people listen to this podcast it may be the first time they've heard about it because we built an MVP. Our app is called Collide. Okay. We built an MVP for it in 2021. Uh, we, you know, we're a bootstrap company. We've raised now. We've raised two million dollars from investors, but at this point, we hadn't raised any money, and so we were poor. And we're like, okay, how can we get a product to market and just see what people's responses are to it? So we found this white label solution. It was super ugly, clunky, didn't have the functionality that we wanted, but it was good enough to look like our own app and just get people's feedback. And so over a few months, just word of mouth, we told a few friends, it built up to a thousand users over a few months. And that was no marketing from digital wildcatters. You know, I'm not talking about it publicly. And that gave us enough, uh, you know, we were able to run some really focused uh, feedback groups and that gave us enough confidence to say, okay, we're going to go build out our own proprietary technology and build out the functionality that we want in a platform. So we spent uh, 2022 building out that technology and we're actually getting ready to roll that out um, here over the next few weeks. So um that's, you know, we're obviously jacked up and, and pumped up about that. So if anyone's listening to this from oil and gas and you haven't heard me talk about it, there's a surprise. <laughs> that is so awesome. I'm so pumped for you. So, so Chris, what's interesting to me about you, I'm going to flip, I'm going to, I'm going to interview you for a second, <laughs> okay. uh, true podcaster form, but you have taken a keen interest to oil and gas and energy more so than most people makes sense. You're up in DFW, uh, which has a heavy presence of oil and gas. Um, what got you interested in the, in the industry and involved in the conversations? I think the first thing is kind of what you said when you were mentioning, you know, maybe somebody up in New York is I'm exposed to it. And so I think, um, so I, all of my best friends, I mean, you probably know a lot of them, just their companies or whatever. They, everybody in Fort Worth is in oil and gas. I really, I joke, I'm the only real estate guy in my friend group. Everybody's <laughs> in oil and gas. So we could start there as like, I'm just really exposed to it. I think the second thing is, um, I don't really remember when it happened, but it became very apparent to me how unbelievably important it is to the world. I mean, I'm not, that's not any novel idea, but for some reason along my business journey, um, well, I'll take a step back. I used to have a company that bought oil and gas mineral rights. So I did that for three or four years. Okay. And now I- Which is very, very similar to commercial real estate for businesses, sure. right? I was in yeah. commercial real estate. I wanted to get into oil and gas. I knew that buying minerals, I went to NAEP in like 2014, 2015. They laughed at me. Nobody was buying minerals at, at scale yet. Yeah. Um, my buddy Parker and I went down to to uh, to NAEP and I just remember, you know, some people were doing it, but at the time it was non-op that was the popular thing. And so anyway, um, got into oil and gas that way, really understood its actual impact on the world aside from just making money doing it. And then it started to dawn on me that the narratives that were being, how it was being talked about, it was just so, it was so false. And um, people were such hypocrites. I mean, I don't think people understand that when they're on their cell phone tweeting about how much they hate oil and gas, like the 
ability to even do that is driven by oil and gas. The phone is made of petroleum products. The power is is driven by <laughs> the, the servers that sent that tweet are yeah, for like sure energy so consumption there. Maybe I've taken a little more extreme approach to get people's attention. It's not that I hate EVs or anything else that you said. I think so what you said, it's all the above. But to sit here and take the most prolific energy source in the world and anybody listening to this that doesn't realize that oil and gas is the main energy source and there's no, well, you can hear all the talking points you want like, oh, we're going to be, you know, 100% electric by 2030 is like that is such a lie that will never actually happen. Now, it does push people to want to do things. So it's good. It's like a good goal because it makes people innovate. But um and then I started realizing, oh my gosh, not only are we hypocrites in America, but nobody's thinking about all the 7 billion people on this planet and the 4 billion people that you just said still power their food with animal dung. They cook their food yeah. with animal dung. So we're sitting here virtue signaling in America while the rest of the world is just going like, oh my gosh, we're about to have oil and gas. We can actually live even remotely close to how the Western world has lived. And so I don't know, it's just all these confluence of things that just made me realize it's like it is one of the biggest issues in the world. And we kind of treat it like it's this like virtue signal game when in reality, it's, it's like you it, go ahead. It's funny how that just like that just like triggered for you. And all of a sudden you just had that clarity because actually the same thing happened for me. You know, when I started roughnecking um, back in 2010, you know, I'm young and I was super hyped up that we're knocking uh, OPEC off the throne. Like that's what I, I was like, I got to go to work every day and like we're putting our stake in the ground for American energy. Right. And but it wasn't until, I mean, even in like the last year and a half to two years where I've really had that clarity of how important this is. And in my opinion, is probably the most pressing topic that the world is uh, face, facing um, currently and probably for the foreseeable future. And so that's like, that's great one. I love that you got into the mineral game that you're a mineral bro. Uh, <laughs> now, now I can, uh, I, I can talk trash to you on oh, that. You can, baby. Um, but, but, <laughs> but then you had this realization and like you said, 80% of the world's power comes from fossil fuels right now. And renewables aren't even, aren't even close to that. And the, um, I, I think what really irks me the most is talking to people in the United States, because I think that we are very entitled and spoiled and we don't truly understand the prosperity that we have had, especially over the last 15 years. And that prosperity was driven by cheap and affordable hydrocarbons and electricity. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to go back to life in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. I really like the life that we have. I'm very optimistic about humans future when it comes both to energy production and figuring out any issues related to climate and sustainability. I think that we'll figure out all of those things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it takes people like you, like me, um, actually educating people on, um, you know, what, what makes the world go round and, and having a, a real talk about that. I can't think of, I mean, there's a lot of issues in the world, but when you take away the energy, like, I'm not saying all the other issues don't matter, but I will just say, like, let's turn off the energy for a week in the world and people would be uh, there's a lot of other things that that suck about life, but I don't think they have as big of an impact on the globe as energy. And um, like you just you could have been the richest dude in 1800 
and you're driving a horse and buggy, you're like you're going into your backyard and you're picking your corn and and your or whatever you have, like your your food's coming out of your backyard, you're heating your house with a fire, you're you have a horse and buggy, you're living to be like 35 or 40 is your expected age limit. And energy is the reason why all those things don't exist. They gave the world the ability to innovate, to build, to invent, to do all these things. And so to sit here now and talk about it like it's this thing we're just going to turn off. Yeah, uh, Chris, I love I love that you brought that up because that's exactly how I frame it. I was just hanging out with a friend the other day. I said, hey, interesting thought experiment. Would you rather be the richest man in the world in 1800 or would you rather be middle class today? And the answer is clear as day to me. Like I love like middle class life is, is great in the United States of America today, and so um, that's uh, that that puts things into perspective uh, for for a lot of people. But the thing that people don't get is when they think about energy or they think about oil and gas specifically, they think about transportation or like you know movement. But what they don't think about is like your iPhone is made of petroleum products. Your computer is made of petroleum products. Every plastic that you use in your life is made of petroleum projects. Like, unless you want to go live under a tree and eat grass, like you're, you are using petroleum product every which way, every day. It has nothing to do with just driving an electric vehicle. It's like, okay, the leather seats in your electric vehicle are made of oil and gas. And oh, by the way, to make the electric vehicle, a lot of oil and gas was used like it it all ro- goes back to oil and gas at some point mining mining consumes a ton of diesel and hate to break it to anyone but i don't think that we're uh going to replace earth movers and construction equipment with electric vehicles uh, anytime <laughs> soon so yeah the um you know i think that's a byproduct of people only thinking about oil and gas in terms of transportation because that's where they see it they see it at the gas pump right um, you know, most people think that electricity just comes from their wall. They don't actually understand that there is this <laughs> entire back end to power generation and transmission, and that a lot of that comes from coal and natural gas. Um, and so, you know, I think it's crazy. I, I posted this the other day, like just boggles my mind that like people up in New York still use heating oil to heat their homes. I mean, talk about just kind of archaic um, technology. I'm like, I'm down here in Cinco Ranch, you know, Katy, Texas. I got nat gas straight to the <laughs> to the house, clean burning natural gas. And I don't have to worry about filling up my heater oil tank. And so um, I, I think that a lot of people just think about it in transportation because that's where they see it um, directly. And they don't have an understanding of how electricity is actually generated. But to your point, energy is upstream of everything. I mean, if you turned off uh turned off energy for a week, Chris, do you think commercial real estate matters? No. I mean, no one yeah, no one's buying <laughs> class B properties. <laughs> no. For, yeah, so uh my class I, B literally... properties are going to turn into class Z properties overnight. <laughs> yeah, 100% <laughs> they're getting downgraded. And so I think that that's uh, that's really important to understand and I've actually been a big proponent of like, hey, oil and gas, we're getting attacked. We should just shut down the industry for a week. Um, it's really not physically possible because it would, uh, refineries, you can't just stop and turn on. But it's like, if people want to live without oil and gas, like, let's just go a week. Let's take a week holiday for worker appreciation in the oil and gas industry and uh, take the week off and see what kind of second order effects that has. Maybe people would understand. I'm going to challenge you with with this. Um you know that video that it's gone viral a bunch, but it's like 
all if if oil and gas stopped, it's like somebody in their daily life and all these things start disappearing. And by the end yeah. of the video, it's like it's just him. Yeah. You have to make that video because if anybody actually watches that with a brain. Yeah. That you got to you have to make more of that type of content so that you can reach these people on the lowest of levels or on the most easy of levels, because these are the same people that let Greta Thunberg like <laughs> dictate their view of energy. And so we have to feed those people the most elementary videos that like a second grader could understand because they're actually taking their energy policy from a second grader. You really do have to break it down. And that vid that commercial that you're talking about was a commercial that was produced by Energy Transfer, who is a midstream uh, pipeline company and great message. And we'd actually produced some commercials. Uh, we helped a nonprofit produce some commercials that were pretty similar that were ran up in Colorado. And so, yeah, agree on that. And then also, you know, what's super interesting to me right now in the content that I'm finding a lot of success with is in short form video, like over on TikTok, I make, hey, what is a drill bit? And it does a million views in a week. And all of a sudden I have people commenting and messaging me like, hey, how can I work in the oil and gas industry? Which is a huge problem because, and this isn't just oil and gas, this is the trade. So this could be construction, this can be plumbing, electricity. There's a huge deficit in workers in the workforce and people coming in because they want to go work at Facebook, Apple, you know, they want to have remote work. And um you know, sometimes I have this sense of guilt um, that I had the opportunity to go work in the oil field. And then also I remember that just like most people wouldn't go work on a drilling rig, uh, even if they had the opportunity. So that guilt goes away. But nonetheless, I had the opportunity. I knew about it and I could get to it. And so teaching this younger generation and these kids that, hey, like there are opportunities to go make a career and learn a trade in the energy industry and help these companies recruit those people. Um, is super important. And just like I said with that YouTuber the other day, this YouTuber, you know, he has no business talking about oil and gas or energy, but took a interest in it, found my videos. And so um, I think like educational things, um, like we do some pretty cool stuff in the energy industry. Like I would love to go take a video on a deep water drill ship because I would absolutely blow everyone's minds. Like people think that oil and gas is just a bunch of rednecks punching a hole in the ground and producing oil when in reality it's some it's not something it is the most technical workforce in the world comprised of engineers and other technical professions that are really um, pushing the bounds of physics to extract oil and gas and different resources from subsurface so um, that's my rant for anyone that's listening to your podcast that uh, may have a, a an interest in what we actually do in this industry I will finish your rant by just saying if if I had to get, and who knows, maybe I will one day. I think if you're listening to this and you're an entrepreneur or you, and we'll take it purely from a business standpoint, I think it's one of the greatest opportunities in the world right now is oil and gas. It's the most precious resource we have with no money flowing into it or, or no uh, enthusiasm yet. I think that will shift. Um, if you're just looking at pure numbers, it can be very profitable. Like you said, there's startups. There's so many ways to tap into this industry. I think it's one of the, like, it's the oldest industry of time. And it, it seems like today is this, um, resurgence of the abundance of opportunity. And there was a guy on the podcast the other day, he said this, but he's like, you go to some places of the world and you tell them you're in oil and gas, you might as well tell them like you're buying porn or you're, you're in like the porn industry or something. Like people <laughs> relate something that's so valuable to something so bad. 
And um, it's, not, it's not even just different parts of the world. You know, I know we're coming up on the end of this show, but let me tell you a funny story real quick. <laughs> so uh, I think it was Hurricane Ida that passed through New Orleans a year or so ago. And it was funny because, you know, you see all these posts of nat gas and diesel generators just heading down to New Orleans. And I made a tweet. I said, I sure see a whole lot of fossil fuel generators going down to New Orleans. I don't see any uh, renewable generators. And someone reached out and was like, hey, there's actually a nonprofit that's taking solar generators down to New Orleans. I said, okay, I stand corrected. I said, and I won't just say that I stand corrected. I said, I'll do you one better. I'll come down to New Orleans and I'll come create content and help y'all set up these solar generators. So we actually put together a trailer full of supplies and I picked up a couple of diesel generators, gas generators and took it down to New Orleans and I helped some people clean up their homes, give out supplies. And then I went and helped this nonprofit set up these solar generators. Um, where I'm getting to at with this story is I was helping these people and you got to like hurricane, man, it's a disaster zone. Like it's just apocalyptic, you know, like kind of like free rain. There's, uh, at nighttime, there's no lights. You can just like hear people like partying and singing. It's New Orleans. So it's actually kind of a vibe. It's actually pretty cool. And this, uh, this lady asks, uh, she's like, Hey, we're going to make dinner. Um, would y'all like to come over? We have some food. And then we're like, yes, absolutely. We appreciate that. And we get over there. And, uh, first she asked if we're vaccinated with COVID and, um, which we won't get into this topic, but I'm not, I wasn't vaccinated and I was, and we told them that we weren't vaccinated. And all of a sudden she like, the mood shifted and uh she like walks to her car and she's like over there for like 15 minutes and we're like okay this is awkward she comes (laughs) back she's like okay well since y'all aren't vaccinated we'll just eat outside in the backyard so like okay and so me and my friend uh tim who's from south africa uh we go into the backyard and we're sitting at this picnic bench (laughs) and they make us food they bring it out and they sit like I kid you not, like 25 yards away oh from my us. God. And so we're having this like conversation and, um, and it's just super awkward. And then she asked what we do. And I mentioned about, I mentioned what we do and obviously oil and gas comes up and she's like, so do you, uh, do you not feel bad about killing the planet working in oil and gas? And dude, oh. I go on this ultimate, like 20 minute bender speech <laughs> about oil and gas and prosperity in the world. After I'm done, she gets up, walks over, takes my plate, walks back inside. (laughs) And we're just like cracking up. I'm like, one, we're here in a disaster zone. I'm fucking helping you pick up your neighborhood, brought supplies, and you hate me because I'm not vaccinated for COVID and I work in oil and gas. And that's in New Orleans, Louisiana, which is a oil and gas state. So you don't even have to go to weird parts of the world for that to happen. I mean, it happens right here in our own backyard. I have one question. Did she or did she not have a Ukraine flag flying in her front yard too? <laughs> uh, so I think this was pre-Russian <laughs> okay. Ukraine war. Bummer. Uh, but 100% would have um, if if uh, it was it was after that case for sure. <laughs> Colin, you're the best, man. This was Dude, great. This is, no, this is awesome, man. Uh, next time up up in DFW, we will have to link up. And I appreciate the opportunity to to come on the show and uh, chop it up with you, Dude, man. no, it was, it was my pleasure. And same thing. I'm going to come to an event. I'm going to come see you in Houston. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. 
Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions.